Can I ask you how you feel about travelling on the tube today? Uh, not really pleased about... Do you know. keep an eye out for things? Oh, yeah, because uh, I live near West Ham, where that last bomb went off. Yeah. What would you be looking for if you were on the tube? Well, you know, just bags lying about. Suspicious-looking people. How do you feel about Irish people? Do you think Irish people are responsible for this? Well, it's... I work with a lot of Irishmen. Uh, the, the Irish feel just as bitter as some of the, the other people. No, I think the Irish people living here should be left alone, you know. Um, they've lived here for years, haven't they? Most of them. And that's it. You know. Happens, doesn't it? On a London Wednesday morning, 17th of March this year, midway in a week which had been marked at the beginning by the escalation of what seemed to be an IRA campaign to bomb civilians on the London underground system. The IRA intent to do that had been published in an interview in the Sunday Times with an IRA spokesman in Dublin. And the day after the publication of that interview, on the Monday, a West Indian-born driver of a tube train had been shot dead when he pursued a man who had fled from a rail carriage in which a bomb had exploded, apparently prematurely. On the Tuesday, two more bombs were found and diffused, so that by the Wednesday morning the London transport system, which moves around 2 million passengers every day over 230-odd stations in and out of those stations, had become prey to the fear of the unknown bomber. The reactions of passengers were as varied as the people who gave them. No, <laughs> I don't bother. You're not afraid of dying then, no? Uh, no, okay. I don't think so. Okay. Well, if they want to blow someone, why don't they blow people up in their own country? The IRA had declared the campaign against civilian travellers to be in pursuit of a British declaration of withdrawal from Northern Ireland, though this was only randomly registered among the random group emerging from Oxford Circus Underground Station on the morning of the 17th. Because we've got a soldiers out there or something, innit? Because the English soldiers. Why do you think they're doing it? Because the English soldiers are out there. No. Uh, what do you think of the bombing that's going on at the moment on the tubes? Well, uh, what everybody else thinks is pretty... Uh, Which is? Well, it's, it's pretty um, rotten. You know, it's pretty... Uh, yes. why, do you think why do you think they're doing it? Well, you, my, my own opinion, I think it's, it's something that everybody knows. They're doing it because... Uh, they, they want to, um... Oh, well, why they don't know? No, I can't tell you. Do you think they have a political reason for doing it? Uh, no, I think they're just a lot of thugs that want to kill and maim people. Have you been worried on the tube this morning? Have you been looking out for things? I, I think, I've not been worried. I've just been caught... Yes, I certainly kept my eyes open. For packages? For packages, yes. In fact, I looked under the seat. <laughs> you know, what? I lifted the seat up and looked under it. Yes. What do you think about Irish people generally because of this? Uh, well, uh... I haven't got a very good opinion on it at the moment, I'm afraid. What do you feel about the bombings generally? It scares me to death. Does it? Yeah. What do you feel about Irish people because of the bombings? It depends on the individual. You don't generally take an attitude because of the bombings to Irish no. people, do you? No. no. Why do you think they're doing it, whoever's doing it? Why do you think they're doing the bombings? I don't know. You don't know if they're doing it for any political reason? Oh, well, I guess they, they must be, mustn't they? Well, political violence, or violence emanating from the home country with a political objective, has been a feature of the Irish emigrant experience for over a century. From 1867, in fact, and from the abortive Fenian uprising, in the aftermath of which some Fenians had made an attempt to rescue a prisoner from Clerkenwell Prison in London. The prisoner was there as the result of an attempt in Manchester to rescue some other Fenian prisoners from a van. And that particular episode is remembered in the maudlin ballad of the smashing 
of the van. A barrel of gunpowder was pushed against one of the outer prison walls. But the prison authorities had already got wind of the conspiracy to effect a rescue. The London police had formed an undercover branch to keep intelligence on the activities of Fenians, and that police branch had got wind of the affair. A century later, the lineal descendants of that undercover constabulary operation, now popularly known as the Irish Squad of the Special Branch, continued to take an active interest in the activities of those who would claim to be the lineal descendants of the Clerkenwell Fenians. In the Clerkenwell explosion, a massive gap was torn in the wall of the prison, as lithographs of the time show. A row of houses near the prison wall was demolished, and 12 of the occupants died. The outcome, in terms of reaction in the Irish population, was predictable. The events of 1867 came as the post-famine wave of immigrants from Ireland was receding, but receding in numbers coming to Britain and hardly receding in the influence of the million or so over the preceding decade which had incurred disturbances. The Irish immigrants were seen by the native population in many instances as dirty, factious and violent. Moreover, it was a time of great industrial development in Britain, and many of those who migrated from the rural areas in Britain to the cities because the growing use of machinery had done away with their jobs, many of those native population who migrated to work at the new machines of the cities found the Irish immigrants undercutting them, the natives, and seeking jobs. And the Irish were further defined as separate by huddling in the run-down areas of cheap lodgings which by the 1860s had become to be known as Little Ireland. The immigrants then had three distinctions of separateness from the native population. Economic, they undercut on wages and were poor. Social, they lived in the run-down areas of the larger towns and cities. Religious, mainly Catholic, a religion whose public practice had only recently, in 1850, had only recently been allowed, and even then with restriction on the public display of religious symbols. In 1852, in Stockport, near Manchester, rioting broke out over the issue of a procession which was to be conducted by the Irish displaying religious insignia. As a newspaper report of the time records, in the county of Lancashire of the 1850s lived almost a quarter of the immigrant Irish population of Britain, drawn there by the weaving and spinning employment of the cotton mills. The town of Stockport held a strong Irish ghetto, which had grown from a mere 300 at the beginning of the century to over 8,000 by 1852. There were, by contemporary accounts, an unruly community in a state of tense antagonism with the native English workers. Existing in overcrowded, crumbling houses along Rock Row and Bridge Street, the Irish were likely to turn out at a moment's notice and set on the first person they met and maltreat him cruelly. Thus the newspaper account of the Irish of Stockport, surly and quick to take offence. Their impending annual procession in June 1852, coming some days after the Royal Proclamation of the Ecclesiastical Titles Bill, saw opposing forces ranged. The following account captures the atmosphere and the sequence of what happened. The Royal Proclamation had been hailed as a sectarian triumph by the lower classes, and they had boasted that they would see the proclamation enforced in the case of the young red-necked scholars, as they termed the Roman Catholic children. The Irish decided that the annual meeting of scholars was not a procession of the sort interdicted and published their resolve to make their demonstration as usual. There was great excitement on the subject and it was said that the authorities thought of preventing the school gathering. But when the day came, the Protestants seemed less excited and the schools were allowed to make their procession without interruption. The Sunday passed off without disturbance, a fact which may have been due to the presence of a body of strong Irishmen who accompanied the procession, which studiously avoided any Roman Catholic insignia. The whole incident appeared to be closed when on the following day many personal encounters began to take place between Irish and English parties 
originating from a disturbance in a beer house. On Tuesday, there were still more evident signs of commotion, and some street fights occurred during which the windows of St. Peter's School, a Protestant school, were broken. This led to a general melee in St. Peter's Square when some stones were thrown against the windows of Alderman Graham's house. Rioting then became general and serious, so fierce, in fact, that the police could not suppress it. The rioting lasted spasmodically for three days, being finally put down by dint of the combined efforts of the police, who managed to hold the chief body of the rioters in check, and of the mayor and magistrates, who meanwhile had assembled and sworn in some hundreds of special constables. The list of seriously wounded comprised 67 persons named. One man was killed, and some others died of injuries received. Hundreds of Irish had fled from the town and slept in the fields for weeks, fearing to return to their homes lest there should be a renewal of disturbances. Understandable, then, that when the Irish Fenians exploded their barrel of gunpowder outside Clerkenwell, killing 12 and wounding 120, there should be retaliation on the Irish in the vicinity of the prison. And in the east end of London, then very much the immigrant melting pot for Latvians, Jews, Laskers and Irish. On the police side, a known Fenian, Michael Barrett, was arrested and subsequently hanged, among the last, if not the actual last, public hanging in Britain. Among those who were disenchanted, to put it mildly with the explosion, was Karl Marx, then attempting to organise the London branch of the International Working Men's Association to support Ireland's political claims. The day following the explosion at Clerkenwell, Marx wrote to his colleague Frederick Engels in Manchester with sentiments which, predated by a century, the comments of Cardinal Conway that you can't bomb a people into agreeing with your political viewpoint. Marx wrote... The London masses, who have shown great sympathy for Ireland, will be made wild by the explosion. One cannot expect the London proletarians to be blown up in honour of the Fenian emissaries. And five days after the Clerkenwell explosion, the effects were still in the air, as Marx wrote again on December 19th. The stupid affair in Clerkenwell was obviously the work of a few specialised fanatics. It is the misfortune of all conspiracies that they lead to such stupidities because of the feeling that, after all, Something must be done. From the point of view of the Irish in Britain, the most important development in 1867 was not the Fenian activities, but the extension of the vote to most of the adult population. And the Irish were drawn in to that area of constitutional politics, which by the early part of the century was to see them most heavily identify with that area of politics which was to become the Labour Party. Not that they were entirely free of the punctuations of political violence. The end of the most violent period of the time, the end of the Great War, had seen many Irish ex-servicemen settle down in Britain, while others, other ex-servicemen, returned to Ireland to participate in the guerrilla actions against an army whose uniform they had but shortly worn. The shooting of Field Marshal Wilson in the early 20s, for which two men were hung, was one such punctuation. But it wasn't until the Second World War that IRA activists in Britain came into prominence. In August 1939, a bomb planted by the IRA in Coventry went off in a shopping area, killing five and wounding twelve. With the outbreak of war with Germany, the IRA, from Dublin, had formally declared war on Britain and threatening, among other things, to bomb Britain with the IRA's own air force. Such flights of fancy in reality became translated into weighty bags of potassium and weed killer and occasionally gelignite being left near letterboxes and transformers and in railway stations. This man planted a bomb at Coventry which killed shoppers. He was a member of an IRA, Active Service Unit in Cork, which was eager for action, and before going to Coventry, they had shot at police in Cork City. McCurtain came to me in Cork. 
and I was working in the bats, and he came up to me. One Friday, and he said to me, he said, Would you... Was I prepared to go to England? So I said that I'd consider it. I didn't rightly agree with the campaign in England. And I said that I'd consider it because for the simple reason was that if I had refused, he might brand me as being yellow. And I said that I'd consider it. So he said, uh, I want a definite answer. He said, yes or no. And I said, right, I'd go. For, the, for what I'm saying, like about, he branded me as yellow. I said, I'd go. And he turned around and he said, all right, be at the Thomas Ash Club tonight at eight o'clock. That was only a moment's notice. He was sent for training to a camp in Kalini. We were brought in and we were, there was a, a big speech made by the adjutant general and uh, he named out all different where, where we were going. Three lads were being sent to uh, London, two to Birmingham and one to Coventry. And I was told that I was going to Coventry at that meeting. So I objected then and then and I said that I should go to London and one or the other five would go to Coventry because that I, I had already worked in England for six months at different times and 12 months and I knew London fairly well and I said that I might be of more interest when you know a city, but I was going to a strange city. He said no, that he said that everything is arranged now and you're going to Coventry. And we, we were told the roads to go. The three that were going to London were to go down and to go on the Rosslea Road. The other two that were going to Birmingham went across on the, the Hollyhead Road, Dunlair and Hollyhead, and I was told to go th through the Liverpool road, road and I was to make contact with a man, the Director of Operations in, uh, in Coventry. And he was there and he made the appointment down outside the post office in Coventry. And I turned up for my appointment and he turned up. He took me down and we went in and we had uh, a couple of beers. He said, come on in, we'll have a few beers. So we went in and we came out after having the beers. And the next thing we walked up long and we stood outside Burton's shop in the Broadgate. And he said to me, Sissy is here, you'll put it now. And he said, it will be on a bicycle. So he said, uh, you'll, you'll put it off, he said, at half past two. So I said to him, I got kind of annoyed about, about, about anything going to happen at half past two. And I said, won't I have a hell of a job to uh, get away out of here because... Uh, I was in digs, posing as a Welshman, about three miles from Broadgate and Coventry. Says, I want to have an awful job to get away out at half past two in the morning. So he said, not half past two in the morning, he said, half past two in the day. And, as I stated before, you could have knocked me over with a feather. And I said, what? He said, 
So he said, uh, he says, it better come off at half past two. Half past two in the day, and I pointed out where that there was so many Irishmen sitting on the, the steps around in Broadgate by the council house. And says I, look, says I, some of these, says I, will be killed. So says I, uh, these alone, says I, they're all Irishmen, and says I, they'll be killed. He says, to hell with them, he said. Says he, let them be, they shouldn't be there. So I was kind of, I was very, very disappointed about it, and I turned around, and he turned around, and he said that I took a note to the Irish Republican Army, and it was war, and that the job had to come off, and the other jobs would be coming off at the same time in London and Birmingham at half past two. So uh, he said, if you don't do it, you'll be court-martialed when you get back to Ireland. So then, what way was I left about it? Not that I I was afraid of doing it or, or uh, that I was under a threat like, but that I had to do it according to the oath that I took to the Irish Republican Army. So I went away with him and he said, come on, I'll introduce you to another another person. He took me up and introduced me to uh, McCormick. And he came more or less with the same talk to McCormick as to me and he left the two of us and he said, He'll see Mac- he said I'll see you later, he said to McCormick. And myself and McCormick went away and we went up to the house in uh, Clara Street and, uh, well, from that on, the mine was made up. The mine took three days to make up in what was known as a safe house in Coventry. Then it was put in the front basket of a bicycle and he set off to cycle with it to the shopping area. About three quarters of an hour before the explosion came off. And when I came around, I put the the mine into the bicycle, the front wheel of the tyre went flat, that it wasn't pumped up right, and McCormick was after taking the pump off the bicycle and he says, you won't need this. And I drove away off the bicycle and I found that when the weight was on, that the tyre got lower and lower. And I had this highly explosive mine in the bicycle and I said I couldn't get off it now and I had to cycle on right down through cobblestones in Coventry, about two miles, on tram tracks, and right down to the place in Broadgate to, to let it off there. Then after, when I when I put it there, I went down and I got the 20 past two train out of Coventry. Brutalities become absorbed in ballads. When first I went to London in the year of 39, the city looked so wonderful, the girls were so divine But the coppers got suspicious and they soon gave me the knock I was charged with being the owner of a new alarm clock And 30 years after the wartime bombings in Britain, a resumed campaign in 1973 this time produced a series of explosions and deaths in London. Stay 
On that campaign, the London Police Commissioner gave these figures last month, that from March 73, when the first IRA bombs went off, there have been 300 bombs of one kind or another, 180 of them in London. 57 people have been killed, as compared with 6,330 people killed by the motor vehicle in 1975. Father Kenneth McCabe lives and works in a strong Irish area of West London. The ordinary Irish working man on the factory floor who himself doesn't know a great deal of the intricacies of Irish history and indeed the intricacies of the problem in the North, uh, found he, you know, was being a little bit resented by his English counterpart who didn't know anything about the Irish situation either. He simply saw their soldiers going over there, the situation causing them a great deal of money, people getting killed, etc. And while there was a great deal of, um, you know, I suppose, complaint on both sides, Neither side really, I think, understood the feelings and indeed the problems of the other side. I think that's how it began. Um, as it went on, and, you know, when the campaign moved over to London and uh, the, the bombing started over here, I would say a great deal of resentment uh, did build up. And, you know, if you went anywhere with an Irish accent, people looked at you twice and things like that. Uh, one was in a cinema queue where... Uh there was a girl, a couple standing behind us and they heard the Northern Ireland accents and it was just after the Piccadilly bombing. And the girl said to her boyfriend, uh, did you hear about the bombing? Wasn't it shocking? And he said, yes, it was. And uh, she said in a very loud voice, I hope they realise now they're internationally disliked. Uh, there was no, uh, at least to my knowledge, there were no very specific kind of um, incidents where people were victimised or... Uh, you know, victimised in any way uh, because of this, but it was just a kind of a general atmosphere, I think a changing of atmosphere where the Irish community were, Irish community were a little bit resented and sometimes a little bit uh, looked on with suspicion, you know. Whereas previously in the 60s they had by and large been uh, terribly well integrated and uh, uh, generally had settled in and made a life for themselves. Uh, yes, well I'm over in London now for about eight years working here and I would say even in those eight years one saw a terrific um, you know, growth in the integration of the Irish community. Um, I worked mainly with the more settled Irish community, the people who did come over, like in the 50s and after the war now, who have their own children and their own families here. And uh, they have become part of the scene, really, you know. Uh, but they have retained their Irishness, they have retained their Irish accents, etc. And uh, naturally enough, they're, they're proud of being Irish. Uh, therefore, you know, they too uh, were affected by what was happening, their integration, the position that, that they had actually built up by hard work and, um, you know, a great deal of, um, I suppose, uh, effort, etc., over here, uh, was beginning to be affected because people didn't distinguish whether you came over to Ireland in the 50s or the early 60s or whether you just came over in the past couple of years. Sometimes I felt that um, being Irish uh, brought about uh, kind of... A and not so much uh, prejudice towards, but a, a certainly a kind of stage uh, Irishman attitude, and you felt that you were being a kind of stereotype of uh, the Irishman, which you know they they had they have much. And if you look, for instance, at um, the kind of campaign, which I think it is anyway, of humour against Irishmen at the moment, it seems to be allied to um, to me and to my mind some kind of propaganda like. Uh, against uh, not only uh, Irishmen, but the IRA and so on in Ireland. It seems to help, like, for instance, you had during the Second World War, 
the same kind of campaign. That would, uh, when you use the word propaganda, it implies a conscious organisation almost, uh, whereas I don't think that there's any conscious orders from Whitehall that comedians no, no, should no, no, start reciting six Irish jokes. No, that's not uh, no, uh, true. It's not that idea. But uh, I feel that uh, there's um, perhaps there's an encouragement given by the press, for instance, uh, especially not so much television, but uh, the kind of humour, uh, well, it's uh, kind of Irish humour against Irishmen has has sprung up perhaps in the past two or three years, and they've they seem to have taken over the monopolised. Uh, jokes for a start and so on. If you get a community who, while, as you say, being proud to be Irish and nonetheless uh, accepting the standards of living which Britain offers them, which up until recently anyway were superior to what Ireland, their own country, would have offered them, if you get a community like that who are settling in, their children are going to grow up and are going to be British in many (coughs) respects. They're going to go into the army, into the police force, into the civil service. Does this cause any kind of schizophrenic problems among people in the Irish community? Um, I've come across one or two cases where it probably did. I remember one case in particular where an Irish uh, woman you know, was terribly disappointed and perhaps even resented a little bit uh, the decision of her son to go into the army. But um, I, I think the, the greater problem, really, Kevin, to me, is that I've always held, and you know, a great deal of my colleagues over here have always held, that the children of, you know, Irish immigrants over here, the ones who did come over in the 50s and the early 60s, uh, are English, you know, the first generation mm-hmm. English, and we've, we've got to accept that, and we've got to accept that they're growing up, they're going to schools where their friends are English, they're imbibing or, you know, soaking in the environmental influences and attitudes of of England. Yes, on and that very specific point, uh, it may well be that one is doing a damage to them by emphasising their Irishness because surely, you know, an Irish family with, whose children grew up in a cockney, multiracial, what have you, environment, uh, do, do you feel that they could be damaged by an emphasis on something which is outside of that basic metropolitan London culture? I do, very much so, and, and I think this is something I, I think that all of us who are working among the Irish community over here have got to you know, be very careful about. Um, somehow or other... I think the Irish community have got to be able to give to their children the the better sides of Irish culture. They've got a a great deal to give them. At the same time, helping them to come to terms with the English environment in which they're growing up. When I came to this country, there was no music. If you went in with your fiddle into a pub, you'd be kicked out of it. The same evening, March 17th, the same day on which the picture of an alleged tube bomber had appeared in all the national papers in Britain and on television, that evening in a pub in Fulham Broadway, the thoughts were far removed from things political. Who opened up the Broadway? Well, in, Fulham, in Fulham Broadway, yes. 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 There wasn't any music around here. Um, uh, Fifteen years ago, they, they wouldn't appreciate music, the traditional music around here. Things have changed, Con. I... Of course to have it because I went into a pub on the Fulham Broadway a few many years ago and he was an ex-priest man and we were playing there for 18 months. Sean Maguire, Roger Sherlock and a lot of music coming here to listen to different styles of music. So he came for Christmas Eve and I asked this old get for a drink in the house. I said, we have brought you custom here. You know what he said to me? The dirty yet. He said, here, here, he said, but the last 18 months, he said, and you're still playing the same tune. 
I haven't mixed with many English people since I've come over here because most of my friends are Irish. Has has being here in any way has it has it uh, helped your attitudes towards towards Ireland? Is there anything you've found through the change of location? Um, I think we've been able to view things a bit better, you know, being away from it because feelings are so changeable in Northern Ireland. You know, if something happens, say if uh, somebody's shot by the British Army, then you immediately think, you know, go out and get them. But when you're over here, you, I think you're just sick of all the killing, you know, and you want you just want it all to stop, you know. You and especially when they're bombing, we've come over here to get away from it, and it just seems to follow us a bit, you know, with the bombing tubes and things like that, and. You, j- you just get fed up with the violence. You know, we're just punch drunk with it, and I think we just don't want it anymore. We just want it to stop. Because it doesn't seem to be for any cause anymore. It just, that's all lost. It became impossible to live in Ireland, to do anything, to go out, to, to live just ordinary, uh, a kind of ordinary life there. So uh, we decided to come over here, and um, the, there were no, I had no attitude about towards the English at that stage, even though uh, certain certain convictions of mine about Ireland, uh, such as you know, long-term ideas about it, uh, well, they got a bit mixed up because of the violence or because of things that had happened. I was I was uncertain, so that when I came here, it was a matter of just trying to forget rather than uh, continue in any active way. Indeed, yeah. yeah. So that. Um, what, what kind of uh, sense have you had from the British people you would meet in the course of travel or work or whatever towards you as an Irish person from Armagh? Um, it's hard to say. I, I th- all the time you, you sometimes sense things, you know, but whether or not it's just people living in cities uh, who are uh, always, you know, on edge perhaps or... or live a, a different kind of life from what we expect at home. They're, they're maybe a little tense, uh, tenser than, you know, you feel uh, people react differently here. So you come up against different things, but whether it's because you're Irish or it's just the natural run of things is another And this reaction from a native Londoner who has lived most of his life in the city, a person with many Irish friends, how does he see the effect on the Irish that he knows in Britain? Increasing embarrassment. Um... The accent's a dead giveaway for a lot of them. And to be accused of being Irish these days is, is almost as insulting as 10, 15 years ago being accused of being a German. What about any kind of reaction if the thing uh, should escalate? Do you see that the indigenous population of London, which after all is composed of many nations, I mean Maltese, Cypriots, West Indians, Irish and so on, do you see them focalising on any easy target? I don't think the target will be easy. The anger will intensify towards, obviously, the cause of the crimes, who we assume to be the Irish population in toto. It's impossible for us as a gut reaction to see it as the work of a few individuals. It obviously is, but uh, as these crimes and outrages continue and hit closer to home, more and more of us learn of relatives, friends, people who knew people who have been influenced in some way for good or bad, the situation will deteriorate and sooner or later you will find someone with a Irish background or link or sympathies, and that would be a natural focus for outrage, initially verbally, but I'm sure abuse of physical nature would follow.
Have you seen any of this so far? Yeah, actually, just in the last 24 hours. Last night, walking the streets just as the pub were closing, and from the language, <laughs> I was on the other side of the road, but it carried quite strongly. There was a lot of swearing about the bloody Irish and similarly about the bloody British and English, and a melee occurred, no doubt. The alcohol had a lot to do with it, but uh, as it does with most human emotions, it brings feelings much closer to the surface. Father Kenneth McCabe was one of five priests working among the Irish in London who, during the bombing campaign, issued a public statement condemning it. And a few days later, in the Irish press in Dublin, there was a letter which took these priests to task and recited the walls of Irish, or indeed Anglo-Irish history, going back to the plantation of Ulster. What does Father McCabe say to that assertion? Yes, well, of course, if, if we're going to um, base all our um, action now on events of, of history, uh, we're never going to, to get anywhere. I think we've got to accept the English people now as they are now and my experience and I think the experience of uh, my colleagues over here and I, I think I could speak for the four other priests who signed the letter with me is that the English people at the moment over here are terribly tolerant they're very tolerant, you, you will get uh, just as you get on, on the Irish side too you will get a minority of, of people who you know totally misunderstand the thing and they can only condemn and uh, you know they can be quite unpleasant about it but the vast majority of English people are terribly tolerant I think, and, and they do recognise the fact that the Irish community, their friends, their neighbours, the people that uh, they meet uh, collecting their children at school, you know, the people they meet in dances, etc., that these people are going through a time when uh, at least it's a terrific embarrassment for them that they are associated with something with which they want to have no part whatsoever. Um, the people who are doing the bombing, I mean, all of us, uh, I think, would consider ourselves patriots uh, over here. None of us forget that we're Irish. Uh, but uh, I couldn't see how an Irishman under any circumstances could uh, in any way uh, condone the, the type of thing that's been happening over here. It can do nothing, I think, nothing at all except to uh, embarrass the Irish community and, and perhaps to upset something that they have taken years and years to build up, something which has become uh, a very valuable part, I think, of the Irish immigrant community over here, and that is acceptance and integration into the community. And from that community that London community with its multiracial inheritance of various immigrants, including, of course, Irish immigrants from the 19th century and the 1860s and the 1870s and the Fenians, the Londoner talking on that evening of March 17th of this year. The situation nosedives severely after any major catastrophe. The bombings this week have obviously influenced greatly the people who travel daily to work in the tube. It's affected myself on that score. What way? Um, there's considerable antagonism with people conversing one to the other, comparative strangers, about the headlines in the newspapers. And obviously, everybody is greeted with a degree of suspicion if they put a bag down, unless they make sure their leg or their arm are close by it. How much do you think people actually think? Why are they do it? Because obviously people aren't going to... Uh, just throw bombs in places quite at random over such a long period? No, I think they're bloody twisted. They're, they are just soft in the head. I cannot believe that anybody can anticipate that their ends will be promoted by these outrages against civilians. I just cannot believe it. I don't see that it's helped the Arab cause in the past. I don't think it'll help the Irish 
problem now. We all wish that they would all pack up and go home. And since we can't focus on the culprits, because every time a culprit is caught, another one seems to materialise, uh, given enough of these outrages, one would want to parcel up the whole bag and send them off. You don't think, uh, that to any extent, uh, British people may feel that, uh, that perhaps British troops should uh, parcel up and go home from Ireland? That that would solve it? Well, I certainly think that um, we're going to become increasingly isolationist and want to protect our own doorstep, and I'm sure British soldiers would be better serving their country, keeping their capital and other cities comparatively free from these war crimes, as I'm sure they must be classified, rather than trying to protect a third party, as the people in Northern Ireland increasingly seem to be becoming. News reports May 7, 1976. The four Irishmen already charged in connection with last December's six-day Balcombe Street siege in central London were yesterday accused on 32 further charges, ten of which relate to murder, including that of the co-editor of the Guinness Book of Records, Ross McQuitter. The charges, which fill six foolscap sheets of paper, cover virtually every explosion and shooting incident in Greater London between August 1974 and December last year. Also at South West London Magistrates Court yesterday morning, Patrick Hackett, 26, a butcher from Nina County, Tipperary, who since a premature bomb explosion in the South Kensington area blew his right hand.